You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right. You can't wait to find out who'll win the AFC and the NFC conferences, right? Not to worry. We pick the Super Bowl contenders with our patented opera prediction method and maybe <laughs> even tip you off on the future owner of the Vince Lombardi trophy. And then Jonathan Cohen takes a free throw on the different national approaches of performance practice and early music. That's right. The cellist, harpsichordist, and conductor nerds out with Oliver on Baroque stuff in advance of his debut <laughs> with Chicago's music of the Baroque. Hmm, maybe I should ask him if he can name more than four handle <laughs> I think he can. Plus, in the two-minute drill, will the English National Opera Chorus finally go on strike? Spoiler alert, we'll all find out in one week. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. You hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. You can even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on the website, operaboxscore.com. We want you to contribute so that you can get the OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, and that number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver, the Australian Open is ruining your sleep. You know, when we recorded last week, the we were still in the first round, and I honestly don't have time to watch the whatever 138 <laughs> matches of the first round. But I did earnestly begin to try to watch matches uh, early in the week last week. And I found out to my dismay that Tennis Channel is not broadcasting matches from Australian Open. They've what? moved they've moved over to ESPN Plus, which is an pay a pay to watch oh. a subscription app, which is yeah. so annoying. They're making tennis fans chase this content. It used to be free on ESPN. It used to be on mm-hmm. USA Network. Mm-hmm. And now we have to go pay more to watch it on ESPN Plus. Weston, what are you annoyed about? This week. Uh, well, I am annoyed at the fall of Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. It has, uh, if you haven't been following this story, it's kind of wild. Essentially, uh, Sports Illustrated was essentially licensing its own name from Authentic Brands Group, which is the owner of the magazine. They own the name, essentially. Uh, and uh, they they ran low on money. Okay. Uh, the, the magazine did, and they failed to pay the licensing mm-hmm. fee to uh, to this parent company, and the entire thing has fallen apart. They're going to lay off probably all of their staff. Um, we don't know if it'll uh, 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 if it will continue to exist. I right now it seems like it will continue to exist, but it'll probably be completely different people making it. Where Wait am I going to get my swimsuit issue? I know that's what I'm saying. You know. <laughs> Opera News had never had a swimsuit edition, sadly. So, you know, now I'll really be missing out. That would be interesting, though. I'm not annoyed. I've got good news, actually. So uh, Stanford women's basketball coach Tara Van Derver is the new winningest coach in NCAA history. She's won 1,203 games. That's more than even Duke's former coach, Mike Krzyzewski. I was trying to think, 
Is there anything that I've done 1,203 times? I think that's probably <laughs> like I've only drunk that many beers. That's the, the number of pizza slices I've eaten in one sitting. I'm a very hungry boy. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Super Bowl 58 coming to the U.S. in mid-February. It's going to be in Las Vegas. Oh, is it normally somewhere else besides the U.S.? Uh, (laughs) That's a fair point. Reba McIntyre singing the national anthem and Usher doing the halftime show. It's all the voice. It is. It is all the voice. Now, so we're gonna we're gonna talk through kind of the the final four here in the AFC. Uh, Kansas City will be playing at Baltimore. In the NFC, Detroit. My Lions will be playing at San Francisco. So we're gonna kind of work through this, looking at metrics of the opera companies in these cities, their current repertoire this season, and as well as some of their notable artists. So we'll start in the American Football Conference. This is Kansas City at Baltimore. We'll start with a visiting team, Kansas City. Put away your Taylor's Swift and your Travis's (laughs) Kelsey, and let's actually talk some opera. Weston, talk us through the company and its season this year. The main company in Kansas City is Lyric Opera of Kansas City, which was founded in 1958, which is fairly typical for an American company. They predate the Super Bowl. They do, just by a bit, you know. Um, So Kansas City usually has a four-opera season, uh, which they technically do this year, but there are some technicalities in the season. (laughs) So they've got Cav Padge, you know, which is two operas technically. Uh, However, they follow that up with Sound of Music, not an opera, notably. Uh, They do are they are doing Gounod's Romeo Mm. and Juliet, not Faust, excuse me. Romeo and Juliet, by the way, way better opera than Faust. Uh, And they're also doing what appears to be an extremely abridged ring cycle in one night entitled Journey to Valhalla. And I have no idea what that's about, but it's a pretty nice little season for a kind of a regional company. Get your edibles ready, man. That sounds fun. (laughs) Doesn't it take one evening just to tell the plot of the ring? Let alone to sing anything? Yeah. That that in itself is incredibly ambitious. And like I think that's you know the key to this matchup, right? Kansas City is not the first uh, area you think of when it comes to opera, but you know, they have some stuff going for it. I was I looked at the season, I was like, you know what? If I lived in Kansas City, I would not be too terribly displeased with this, you know? Um, even Sound of Music, which is, as I said, a musical, I like Sound of Music. I think Richard Rogers is a great composer on an operatic scale. And, uh, you know, it, it's got some stuff going for it. Kansas City also has the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts, which is a right. relatively yeah, that's true. brand mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. It was opened in the way 2011, you know, uh, venue for uh, ballet and for the opera yeah. and for yeah. the symphony. So it is uh, in the it is one of the state of the art venues for the performing arts. So I think they get some points for caring about the arts that much that we have this type of venue uh, that everybody wants to perform in. I'm not sure about the whole thing about Kansas State and Kansas City, because if we're talking about Kansas State, we can begin to <laughs> bring in a bunch of other singers that okay. are notable singers, like <laughs> S- Samuel Ramey or something like that. But um, Joyce Donato counts Kansas City as her home. Uh, she's Even though actually, she wasn't born there. Yeah, she's from like Prairie something, She's Kansas. from Kansas, Kansas. Yeah, but I mean, it's hard to get bigger... In American opera, than Joyce's, and I mean, maybe one True. other name is Renee Fleming. Yeah. That yeah, you Renee. know, 
but um, you know, Joyce Dionato is uh, is the queen B, the queen D, so to speak. You know, anyone else? Uh, Vincent Cole, I guess, was born in Kansas mm-hmm. City, and he is one of the early Mozartian bel canto tenors, and he's African American, which is yeah. also. You know, being a male black singer when his career was uh, at its peak was definitely mm-hmm. uh, rare for its time. Yeah. And I guess, Weston, you dug up that uh, the um, administrator of San Diego, director of San Diego Opera, uh, uh, was from Kansas City. David and he was also a singer. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's that's so. that's at least two and three if you count Joyce Stevenato. <laughs> Weston, let's go over to Baltimore then. So uh, Baltimore Opera Company was a heavy hitter. It was founded around the same time as Kansas City Lyric, but it completely folded during the Great Recession. And Baltimore is a city in the opera world that I think used to be kind of not not the biggest deal in the world, but but had some like real, real oomph in the classical music sphere. However, because of that aforementioned recession, it took a hit. Mm. So we have, you know, it, it's sort of analogous in my mind to a team that was once great and has had just a string of bad luck for years. And maybe now's the time for a comeback. They have a couple of smaller companies now. Uh, Opera Baltimore is kind of the biggest player at the moment. Um, they are actually expanding their season this year, which is a nice what? thing to see as other companies are kind of falling apart right now Crazy uh, in the U.S., uh, and this is according to their website. So, you know, grain of salt. They also s- brag that they frequently sell out their shows. So they currently have a niche or a very small house to perform in. I'm not sure which it is. Um, they have. So so like I said, there's some comeback potential in this matchup. This season, however, is on the more traditional side, even more so than I think Kansas City. They're doing Eugene Onegin, which, you know, great opera. I love it. They're doing Mozart's Der Schauspiel Director, which is kind of a, a deeper cut for Mozart and Rigoletto, which is neither here nor there. But not a lot of new sounds in there. It's making Sound of Music sound contemporary, which is, you know, not necessarily something I like to encourage, but it's an interesting season and it's I I think Baltimore could be due for a comeback. I agree with that. I mean, they haven't done the Mozart Verdi Puccini trio, but they're close. Schauspiel director is, you know, lesser performed Mozart. There's nothing unusual about Rigoletto. Onegin is a is a big show. Um but you know, so is Romeo and Juliet. And and there's one less performance in Baltimore, one less production in Baltimore than there is in Kansas City. Oliver, tell us about our singers. I mean, I would just, for the record, I would rather see Eugene O'Neill than just about anything happening uh, in Kansas. <laughs> but agree, I do agree. But I do love Gounod's Romeo and Juliet. I think that's a good show. Yeah, it's a good show. Uh, and by the way, it's Cav Pag. By the way, not Cav Padge. Cav Padge. <laughs> sounds so gross when you say it. <laughs> Hayachi. Pagliacci. <laughs> Famous. Artist coming out of Baltimore, James Morris, the Wagnerian baritone. That's a good uh, one. There's a huge deal uh, in uh, Wagner operas, like the Votan of his generation in the 90s. Um, Justin Tucker, who is an artist that we've talked about here on this show, not because he's a notable singer, but because he's actually a kicker for some football team. I forget which for, one. For the Ravens. He is a oh, kicker for the, for the Ravens. Okay. I'm going to get that man on this show if it's the last thing I do. Philip Glass is from Baltimore. That's sort of a big deal. You know, that's, yeah. for, that's a huge deal. Yeah. 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 Great, great American composer. Um, 
one of the uh, exponents of minimalism. And exactly. uh, yeah, and then I guess the first ever best in Porgy and Bess and Brown. Really not not just the first ever bet. I was actually looking up the. I was desperately trying to find uh, deep cut singers for all of these cities. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Anne Brown was actually really interesting because uh, you might be aware that Porgy and Bess is based on a novel entitled Porgy, not Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. Bess is a much more secondary character in the original. But George Gershwin heard Anne Brown sing. It completely rewrote the part for her to be much bigger hmm. and literally made it Porgy and best, which I thought was kind of cool. If I had to pick a winner between these two teams based on the, the opera metrics, I would pick Baltimore. I understand that Kansas has got Joyce and really? it's got a, a greater performing arts venue, but I think the the singers coming out of Baltimore and I think the slightly unusual repertoire, it's not you know insane, uh, for me, that puts Baltimore as a winner. Huh. Well, uh, you sounds like you disagree, Oliver. Hit us with your opinion. Well, I do think that Kansas City seems like it has a lot more sustainable uh, opera happening there. Um, it's more uh, has a longer history. Uh, I know that you said that some companies were founded on the same time, but I feel like uh, the Baltimore Opera Company we're talking about now is an outgrowth of Baltimore Concert Opera. And mm-hmm. you look at you look at their, you know images their websites whatever it still feels very like fledgling it doesn't feel like super established and um i think you're gonna have higher production value in kansas city and uh, i do think you can't deny joyce donato uh she's a major (laughs) major player and then if you like bring it over to the sports world um travis kelsey is a name that i know like I don't know a lot about uh, about football, but I know his name. Um, so <laughs> that's cheating, dude. Yeah. It's the Taylor bump. For, for, let yeah. me just first of all add that um, Elizabeth Futrell is also on the board at Opera Baltimore. Let's get the name right here. Um, Julia Cook, the artistic director. Oh, right. I know Julia Cook. Okay. Yeah, there you go. See, okay, I, I can I can be a little tiebreaker for this. Round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go. for it. Uh, it. Simply because of Philip Glass, I'm I'm giving it to Baltimore. There we go. Okay. There we go. All right. <laughs> Let's see. So we're awesome. saying Opera Box Scores pick for the AFC is Baltimore. Correct. Yeah. So then moving over to the National Football Conference, this is Detroit at San Francisco. Obviously, I'm biased, right? I, my Wolverines come first. My Lions, when I watch pro football, come second. We will start with Detroit as the visiting team. Uh, Weston, kick us off with some of the history then for Detroit. Well, let me first say that Detroit versus San Francisco is going to be the real contest from an opera standpoint here. Uh, uh, Detroit is kind of in an interesting position. They're kind of... Uh, I think almost rebranding themselves because uh, the you know, Michi- Michigan Opera Theater was founded in the 60s and just became Detroit Opera in the past uh, couple years, I believe in 2022. It was founded at about the same time that Detroit was last in the NFC championship game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is uh, this is kind of a uh, uh, and, and they're really in a in a state now where I think they're trying to like. Uh, re sort of contextualize themselves as Agree. to what what their artistic sort of viewpoint is, and I think in a really exciting way. Like Detroit, Detroit Opera has gotten me really excited. I think uh, a lot over the past years, more than a lot of other companies. 
uh, in the region. And, mid- and you know, it is a, a, a sort of Midwestern powerhouse, and we're in the Midwest here, so there might be a little bit of bias for us Chicago boys mm-hmm. on the podcast. Uh, they have a great, uh, a great little season put together. Um, they have a uh, Breaking the Waves, Missy Mazzoli, um, which is, you know, something I wanted to see at Lyric. But then the pandemic went and uh, put a wall between uh, me and that experience. They're also doing The Cunning Little v- Vixen, which I love. I love Janacek so much. They're doing Madam Butterfly with an Asian cast and conductor. And if you uh, move past the uh, sort of main stage season, uh, they're doing they're doing uh, John Cage's Your Operas three and four, which is truly bizarre stuff that no one is doing uh, right now. <laughs> and I am, you know, I, I am just like staggered by the uh, artistic ambition of of going that weird as part of this, you know, uh, rebrand and like you know. Detroit hasn't been around as long, you know, even if you count Michigan Opera Theater as part Mm -hmm. of Detroit's whole experience, it's not, you know, it's not the same level as San Francisco, but it is a younger company. It is it is coming up and, and taking risks. And I love to see it. And it could put them over the top. I'm very excited about what's happening in Detroit. Um, yeah. Of course, Christine Gerke is a friend of the show, and we've always wanted to get Yuval Sharon, and we've been talking about Yuval Sharon and his work for the past right. couple of years. Um, the Butterfly already happened. It was stage directed by Matthew Ozawa, and the mm-hmm. cast yeah, yeah. Uh, was a completely BIPOC cast um, with Asian singers and the Asian roles. So that's very, and that's like Love that. how they, I imagined uh, the the Madam Butterfly to keep it, um, you know, whatever politically correct. I think that they're on the right track over there. I'm super excited. As far as some singers from the Detroit area, Maria Ewing, the late Maria Ewing, mm. uh, mezzo-soprano, and George Shirley, still kicking chicken, uh, another one <laughs> of the great African-American artists. Uh, he was technically born in Indiana, in Indiana, but uh, according to Weston's research uh he was raised in detroit thank you for the research yeah he's actually based uh uh he actually i believe lives in ann arbor now but uh i found out over thanksgiving that apparently when i was like four years old i actually met him uh in ann arbor the honor of his life so like (laughs) he got the old yeah (laughs) so then looking at san francisco this is the team to beat san francisco i believe is the fourth oldest Opera House in the comp- in the country. This is their 101st season, uh, which is wow. wild. Uh, they have Jesus. a massive season by American standards. They've got you know traditional and weird stuff. They got uh, Elixir of Love, uh, Lohengrin, Trovatore. They're doing Kaya Sariao's final opera, Innocence, which is an abs going to be uh, an absolute highlight of that season. They are doing Magic Flute, which is a little bit less exciting, but. Christopher Alden is directing, so mm-hmm. George is happy. Uh, they're also doing uh, Handel's uh, Partinape, as George would pronounce it. Uh, and they're doing Omar, <laughs> Revolution of Steve Jobs. It is a stacked season. Nothing as weird as um, as uh, your operas three and four, but man, that is a season. I have been to the San Francisco Opera House uh, yeah, it feels established. It is locked in there. It has yeah. deep, deep roots, and it's going to be a tough team to beat. And that the, that SFO season kind of split into these two halves. It's not 
like following the academic calendar year. It's sort of like some shows and then a break and then some shows. Oliver, uh, some singers coming out of SF. Well, we really couldn't find uh, a list of singers who were born in San Francisco that were notable. Um, Weston found some from the turn of the century. Uh, Rita Fornia, Maud Faye, uh, Linda Watson. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't know. Linda Watson careers. is is living. I will clarify. Linda yeah. Watson, I believe, is more of a teacher now. But uh, I mean, for all you Mod Faye fans out there, going nuts right now, having heard her name for the first time since 1922. Uh, yeah, this is the problem with being like this old established company. Some yeah. might say maybe its best years are behind it. Maybe like the best singers to come out of San Francisco happened a century ago. Maybe now's the time for Detroit to uh, be the uh, up and comer to uh, knock over the Titan. I'm not sure if this metric works for either cities, uh, Detroit or um, San Francisco, but I do think that San Francisco's uh, repertoire is very ambitious and comprehensive. They just have a bigger budget and they can do however many shows is eight shows in their season or yeah. not. So yeah, it's sort exactly. of, it's sort of, it's sort of hard to pit them against Detroit, which is, I assume a much smaller budget, but with what Detroit yeah. has with the limited resources they have, they are doing very exciting things. This hurts me, right? Because obviously I love the city of Detroit. You, you watch these football games where there is a young upstart team that is, goes very deep into the playoffs and, and, you're excited for them. You're excited for that potential. And they are up against a team which is more experienced, bigger, faster, and ultimately will triumph. And that is really this matchup right now. I I love Yuval Sharon's work. I love the programming. Christine Gerke brought on as an artistic advisor, the programming, the George Shirley connection. I don't see how at the end of the day you can say that San Francisco is a less well-rounded package and a less important opera institution. They're both uh, tier one in Opera America, so their budgets are comparable. But San Francisco, the depth of these of this roster of shows across all parts of the repertoire is overwhelming. For me, San Francisco wins this and breaks my heart. What do you think, Oliver? Oh, I'm going to go with Detroit just because I love Gerke. I'm impressed with Yuval Sharon. And uh, yeah, with fewer operas to to stage in a year, uh, they they're taking chances by doing breaking the waves and by doing cutting a little vixen, and by having their one, you know, core repertoire show, being very thoughtful. So I feel like they're on the right path. And uh, if they just had more resources, I think they could they could do things just as impressively as San Francisco yeah. does. All right, Weston, you got to break the tie. Uh, I, uh, I think Detroit has two things going for it, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that San Fran doesn't, does not. And those things are John Cage operas and my best friend, George Shirley. So I'm going to give it to my best friend's, uh, hometown, Detroit. We're calling it right now, folks. It's going to be Detroit versus whoever we said won the last one. Baltimore. <laughs> Baltimore. Yeah. Baltimore. Yeah. Oh. The Detroit San Francisco matchup in Opera Land is the matchup. The the winner of that, I, I, it would be hard to say that Detroit Opera would would lose to Opera Baltimore. I I don't think that. Would I happen. completely agree. Uh, yeah. I think if Detroit, if the Detroit Lions could actually make it to the Super Bowl, their hurdle will be San Francisco. Their hurdle will not be Baltimore. Uh, right. So yeah, I would I would go Lions for the trophy. You heard it here first. 
Let us know what you think about all of this. Uh, super easy to let us know what you're thinking. You can just drop us a line, mailbag at operaboxscore.com. You've got uh, at least two weeks, if not more, to make your picks for a Super Bowl. Let us know. This weekend, Jonathan Cohen makes his debut conducting Chicago's Music of the Broke. He's also in the middle of his first season as the Handel and Haydn Society's artistic director. And Jonathan Cohen is the founder of his own ensemble, Archangelo, which records with some of my favorite early music specialists like Kate Lindsay and Anna Prohaska and Christopher Purvis, and notably Yeston Davies, friend of the show. Yeston Davis, friend of the show. Um, it won't take a genius to figure out why I am like completely smitten by Jonathan Cohen. It's a very good-looking guy, but he's also making the type of music that I just love so much. It's so stylish. It's so uh, dynamic. You know, he's doing a lot of uh, repertoire that I care so much about. Uh, we will begin by listening to his recording of uh, the aria from Reynaldo Sibilar, uh, sung by Christopher Purvis. This is Jonathan Cohen's band, Archangelo. Oh, and before we get to the music, I will say that the reason why I'm talking to you, to Jonathan Cohen is because I got to interview him for my other job. And uh, as we transition to the conversation for the podcast, I tried to get him to talk about um, what makes what are the differences between American singers and nationalities of other singers that he works with? And he would not take the bait and he refused <laughs> to answer the question. So you'll hear me, you'll hear me trying to get him to answer that question. I feel, just from my experience talking to a bunch of different nationalities of singers, that Americans are thought to have a very strong technique um, and maybe come very prepared, but perhaps need more work on the style. Depends what the music is and depends on the singer, but but probably that's that's the case. I mean, the, the, the thing is, I think it's also the same in Europe, but in, in some conservatory situations. I suppose it's about the style of the education, that it's much easier to tell people what they shouldn't do than it is to encourage them to explore what could be done, if you see what I mean. And, and maybe there's a feeling of, well, that's wrong if you do it like that in some kind of educational institutions. Uh, and, you know, I suppose there's been a long history and tradition of, of ways of teaching. And then this is, I mean, it happened a bit with string playing as well. You, you, you move through uh, periods of music which are fashionable and some incredibly great teachers that have their style monopolized through that, the lineage of their pupils. And this is the right way to play that kind of music. And it becomes like a gospel and I suppose some people that come to their kind of come to music think, oh well, you know, I I have to play it that way, and this is the only way. And I think there's a more individualistic sometimes view 
in education in some places in Europe, maybe. <laughs> it's hard to say. But, um, you know, we have to encourage people to, to go away and explore all the repertoire and ideas and, um, from them, you know, from their own initiative as well as seeking out answers from 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 teachers and you know th there's not one way to do something and and we all must we all must explore and try to try to find the best way to express ourselves and to be ourselves that's what i think anyway but well know, as you know, as you are getting more and more international engagements uh with organizations that you don't normally work with what are your priorities um when you have a limited time to rehearse and you, that could be with the band or with the chorus or with the soloists. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. We could talk for a long time about that, but I, I don't. I mean, I, I have a I have a view, I suppose, of what the music could be, like a sort of imagination of what it could be. But I always sort of reserve a final interpretation, really, from the rehearsals, because you know, you 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 travel and you meet a a new group of people and and they also have ideas and a history and a tradition and a and um, a viewpoint and um it's a kind of marriage sometimes of of processes is what the rehearsal is in a sense it's um you know it's like a cooking of a soup isn't it and and uh, it's all very nice to to have a final view of what soup you're trying to make but you come there and if the ingredients are different then it's going to end up being a slightly different type of uh <laughs> Um, soup in the fire, you know, and, and one has to allow that possibility. I think that's important. You know? That's yeah. a great answer. Um, I <laughs> people always ask me because I, I love to cook and I've been known to put together some nice meals for people. <laughs> and they always ask me, "What type of cooking do you do?" Or like, "What is, what style of cooking?" It's like, I don't know. I just I see what's in the store and like what looks good that day. You know, exactly. I think no. you have to be very flexible like that as a as a as a as a chef, a chef no. d'orchestre. Let's yeah. say, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's true. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you can answer this question more straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. I, first of all, the audience by now knows that I adore you and I love your work so much. And one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to what you do is that it doesn't seem to be exactly English or <laughs> that there's something about your flair you're a little bit more willing to let the gut string sound a little bit more scratchy and, you know, taking opportunities to be percussive uh, in the continuous section and rhythms are snappy. Not that like there aren't other English groups that are doing this, but your recordings are sometimes a little bit dirty in a good yeah. way, you know, um, <laughs> I which I don't, I don't feel like that's the English tradition. No, maybe not. Maybe you're right. Actually, I think that's partly because my my um my I had a sort of apprenticeship as a conductor. You know, I, I studied um, for about five years. I was the uh, assistant for William Christie mm -hmm. in Paris. So I had a sort of European mentorship, let's say. Um, so you know, I was lucky enough to inherit the 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 British Baroque traditions, let's say. You know, but those things, are, those traditions are also changing quite quickly. I would say that British early music at the moment is probably received more input from sort of the Italian, uh, as you mentioned, the percussive uh, rhythmic elements of the 
Italian style of Baroque groups now. I think there's a, I think things change quite quickly from generation to generation. And what you've rightly defined as a kind of first sort of Baroque uh, 1.0, mm-hmm. the British tradition, because it sort of flourished and started in Britain, didn't it, in a way, with the early music revivals and then spread out. Um, but, you know, things are changing all the time and we're all the, always the product of our, of our relationships and experiences. Two programs you did with Kate, the um, Ariana program and the, um, the Tirano one, yeah, the, Tira, the yeah, the neurocentric program. Yeah. Uh, are these your choices or her choices? Are you are you both like both going to the library stacks and like trying to figure out? Oh, this is interesting. Let's see what this one sounds like. You know. Well, I think I think I think the uh, the initial impetus came from Kate uh, with her kind of themes and wishes, and then I think the discussion between us filled in the precise repertoire with with some help actually um well particularly in the nearer one from james halliday who's our who's our librarian and consultant at archangelo comes up with amazing um ideas as well to throw into the mix but yeah i mean kate really wanted to something very strongly themed you know and um also some pieces particular that she wanted to do and and i think we built together two very good programs actually which is which is important in in recording now, I think to have a good theme like that. Did you reject a lot of music that, cause I can imagine like there's, you know, some of these themes I have been done over and over again. And like, you know, I know you're probably very good just like looking at the score and saying, ah, oh, that doesn't look that interesting, mm-hmm. you know, but Kate could probably make it come to life, you know? If- well, exactly. I mean, you one has to choose the music also thinking about what the, what the singer strengths and, you know, I mean, I thought, for example, the Scarlatti was a wonderful thing to do because they haven't been done so much. And Scarlatti wrote hundreds of cantatas and very few of them are known or done really well. Um, so the chance to have someone like Kate, actually, to come do music like Scarlatti, that's not a normal type of type of pairing. You know, normally if someone resurrects an unknown Scarlatti cantata, it's someone very much who inhabits the Baroque world. And... The chance to bring a real kind of uh, actor singer like Kate into the music of Scarlatti was a was a was a really great chance for us, and it worked out really well. I think she really brings them to life. I'm not a 
In the middle of that interview, you heard Ana Prohaska singing a little bit of an aria from Cavalli's La Calisto, Restino Imbalsamate. And that last excerpt was friend of the show, Kate Lindsay, from uh, the Scarlatti Cantata La Morte di Nerone with Jonathan Cohen's band Archangelo. Once again, Jonathan Cohen is making his debut in Chicago, leading Music of the Broke. This weekend, if you're listening to this podcast when it uh, comes out, my thanks to Music of the Broke for making that interview possible. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The chorus members of English National Opera have voted unanimously in favor of a strike in response to ENO's plans to reduce its opera season and contracts in London. ENO's proposed solutions to their deficit is to fire the musicians and music staff and re-employ them for six months of the year, or to reduce full-time employees to freelance positions only. Represented by their union equity, the chorus will join the music union members for the first day of the strike, effectively canceling opening night of Paul Reuter's The Handmaid's Tale on February 1st, if the strike takes place. Universal Music Group, which owns major classical labels like Deutsche Grammophon and Decca, is planning to implement mass layoffs in the coming weeks after subpar economic growth last year. This has become an industry-wide trend as recording profits flatten after the pandemic. We will cut overhead in order to grow it elsewhere, said UMG chairman Lucien Grenge. We do have experience in managing the business, in managing the teams, and the businesses within that make up the group, and we've got a plan. Well, I hope that plan still includes Lisa Davidson's recording contract. Amen. Opera makers enrolled at New Jersey's William Patterson University are using AI to help write a three-act opera with a chatbot as a key character. So half of the class will use ChatGPT to write texts for the libretto, while the other half of the class will compose music using a variety of online music generator programs. The class is expected to complete the opera in the spring semester if they haven't already been dominated. The U.S. Department of Education has concluded that the San Francisco Conservatory of Music mishandled an investigation into a stalking and sexual assault in 2022. The government agency found the conservatory failed to provide equal access to classes and other educational opportunities to the victim in question, and is requiring that the conservatory reimburse her for $5,000 in medical and counseling expenses. Taking OBS's lead, the New York Times has surveyed six career-defining performances by Maria Callas at La Scala. Find the link to the piece at operaboxscore.com or just wait until we uh, <clears throat> borrow from the piece for a future <laughs> Callas 100 segment. Friends of the show David T. Little and Royce Vavrick will see their 2010 collaboration Vinkensport, or the Finch Opera, mounted by Opera Parallel in San Francisco this April. The one-act comic opera about a sport that developed around birdsong in the 16th century in Flanders will be on a sports-centric twofer. The other half of the double bill, Laura Karpman and Gail Collins's tennis opera, Balls. Simone Young will become the first woman and the first Australian to conduct a ring cycle at the 2024 Bayreuth Festival. Young follows in the footsteps of Oksana Lviv, whose performances of Flying Dutchman in 21 broke the glass ceiling at the Wagner Temple. 
Quote, this invitation is a clear recognition of Simone's status as one of the world's great conductors of Wagner's music, said Sydney Symphony Orchestra CEO Craig Whitehead. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. You can do better than that, George. <laughs> uh, he goes on, we are uh, tremendously excited about this opportunity for her. Oh, you couldn't do better, George. <laughs> Donne. Women in Music, a foundation based in the UK, is set to break the Guinness World Record for the longest acoustic music live-streamed concert, with a 24-hour concert of works exclusively by women and non-binary composers. The event on February 22nd to be live-streamed on YouTube is called Let Her Music Play, and will include performances by mezzo-soprano Igel Akhmetchina, baritone Roderick Williams, my friend, and soprano Carolyn Sampson. The Donne Foundation is now inviting artists and public figures to participate, to participate, advocate, and contribute to this world record bid. Last week, Jonas Kaufmann sang at the funeral of German footballer Franz Beckenbauer, saying, quote, I grew up in Munich and have been a fan of FC Bayern since childhood. Beckenbauer is, in my eyes, the greatest personality in the history of the club and German football in general. As a sportsman and as a person, he is unrivaled. Kaufman's selections included Conte Partiro, made famous by the unrivaled Andrea Bocelli. In trade news, New Orleans Opera Association has tapped British and American producer, librettist, and friend of the show, Lila Palmer, as its new general and artistic director beginning this May. To be asked to lead New Orleans Opera Association is a tremendous gift and a humbling responsibility, said Palmer. The company and its antecedents formed the cradle of bel canto in America, and the city has shown an unbroken legacy of love for both opera and the transformative, life-giving power of music. Conductor Victorian Van Osten will be the new music director of France's Opera de Toulon starting at the end of this month. A former assistant conductor to Daniel Berenboim at Staatsoper Unter den Linden in Berlin, Van Osten is director of Switzerland's Ensemble Symphonique de Neuchâtel and principal conductor of Philharmonie de, Philharmonie de Paris Demos, a social program and ensemble equivalent to Venezuela's El Sistema. Toulon has been without a music director since the departure of Georgian Hempel in 2021. On the disabled list, Anya Hartaros has canceled two engagements at the Bayerische Staatsoper this spring. Her cancellation of Parsifal in March opens the path for American mezzo-soprano Irene Roberts, while Eleonora Burato will make her world debut as Tosca, replacing Hartaros in May. Okay, so all of this is putting us on Hartaros watch. <laughs> if you have the scoop about the German soprano's mysterious string of cancellations, use our tip line, you got something to say? OperaBoxScore.com. Exit stage right. A cult figure and one of the true operatic contraltos, Eva Podlesch, has died of lung cancer at the age of 71. Born in Warsaw and a graduate of what is now called the Chopin University of Music, Podlesch possessed one of the rarest and most expressive instruments with the three octave range, suggest suggesting the chest voice of a baritone and displaying the coloratura chops of an elite bel canto specialist. Handel and Rossini supplied her calling card roles, but Polish's operatic repertoire included Azucena, Princess Eboli, Adalgisa, Erda, Kutumnestra, and Baba the Turk. Australian pianist, music director, and conductor Kelly Dickerson has passed away at the age of 53 from a rare neurodegenerative condition known as multiple system atrophy, or MSA. Dickerson directed performances of opera and music theater at Sydney Opera House, Opera Queensland, and Carnegie Hall. Des Moines Metro Opera reports the passing of bass baritone Edward Bogush, a teacher of English, voice, and a remarkable performer 
From his debut, singing the title role in Falstaff in 1974 through his final appearances as Baron Ox and Rosencavalier in 92, Ed was seen in 28 roles for Des Moines over nearly three decades. American composer and parodist Peter Shickley has died at the age of 88. Shickley composed over 100 serious works, but is best known for creating the fictional character P.D.Q. Bach. He wrote works for the lesser-known Fox, like the Bargain Counter Tenor and the <laughs> Off-Coloratura Soprano, and even the titles of his works, such as Iphigenia in Brooklyn, the half-act opera The Stoned Guest, and Hansel and Gretel and Ted and Alice, an opera in one unnatural act, would inspire a laugh. And on this day, January 2nd, birthdays include American soprano Rosa Pancel, born in Connecticut in 1897, Belgian soprano Suzanne Danko, born in Brussels in 1911, Czech soprano Emmy Lusa, born in Carbis in 1914, American baritone William Warfield was born in West Helena, Arkansas in 1920, and on January 22nd, South Korean conductor and pianist Byung-Wang Chung was born in 1953. First performances include one of the first French operas, Michel de la Guerre's Le Triomphe de l'Amour in 1655, Handel's opera Ottone in 1723, Gilbert and Sullivan's Redigore at the Savoy in 1887, the first American performance of Strauss's Zalome in New York City. Critics called it a scandal and it was canceled after this performance of January 22nd, 1907. The first version of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk District uh, was performed in Leningrad on January 22, 1934. And Carla Floyd's Of Mice and Men had its first performance in Seattle in 1970. And on this day, January 22nd, in 1889, it was the founding of Columbia Phonograph Company in Washington, D.C., which was folded into either Warner or Universal. I can't tell which, but now none of it exists. <laughs> That's your two-minute drill. a little bit of the great Eva Podlesh in one of her signature roles, Rinaldo, the lament Cara Sposa. I have the entire um, highlights of that uh, role for her, which was committed to disc. I forget what label it's on, but uh, she's a beast as Rinaldo. Uh, so much chest voice, so much like deliberate register breaking 
just for fun. <laughs> and the color tour was there and the high notes were there. Uh, I loved her handle and I loved her Rossini too. Um, yeah. Um, such an important artist, uh, an important singer for Poland and an important singer for, um, you know, Rossini and Handel. Weston, the first performance of Zalame at the Met in 1907. Oh, trust me, George. Uh, the story behind this, this Zalame is really fascinating. And I do encourage anyone who's listening to look it up uh, because 1907 America was not ready for Zalame no. in any sense of the word. But the best part was that they the uh, the advertising in 1907 really leaned into it. Uh, my favorite story is that the lead soprano for that uh, production uh, literally went to a morgue and had them give her heads so she could pick them up and weigh them and make sure the fake head of John the Baptist was the correct weight and size for the production. And they put that in all the newspapers. Is it any wonder that 1907 uh, New York public was a little scandalized? I, I just love it. I love that opera. And it wasn't performed again until 1930. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope if you were from 1907, you got to see that one performance. Well, it looks like ENO might not be performing until 2030 because they uh, <laughs> the chorus is going on strike. A hundred percent of the chorus vote yes to full strike action. That is going to happen at the moment, planned for February 1st, uh, which is the opening night of Handmaid's Tale at the company. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. is anyone surprised that it has come to this? I'm not. No, it, it makes sense. They are. Uh, I think that. They rightly see that they have nothing to lose at this point. So the orchestra and the uh, chorus are uh, have voted to authorize this strike. And unless management caves before next week, uh, Handmaid's Tale will not go on. And I suspect they won't cave next week. So Well, they, there's nothing to cave in. There's, there's no good solution to this. I, I... I think there's better solutions, certainly. <laughs> this is crazy. This is the first time that the Musicians Union have uh, gone on strike in, since 1980. Really? So this is wow. for real. This is serious. They they mean business. I think it's it's not – I mean, it, it is against management. Don't get me wrong. I think a lot of managers' proposals have, for solving this problem have been pretty, you know, lacking, to say it generously. Um, but this is also an opportunity to demonstrate on a wider scale, like this is what's going to happen to the arts in, um, in England, uh, not just in opera, but in England, in the arts in general in England, if, uh, if this is the general sort of austerity that is going to be the future of, of funding in that country. So we'll be watching with bated breath. We'll see what happens. So, Oliver, um, Sports Illustrated is collapsing. ENO is collapsing. Universal Music Group is now implementing mass layoffs. <laughs> For those of you who remember when we used to be a video podcast, a ah yes, yeah, those days. So, some of you will remember that I, I, my uh, home microphone setup is in front of my bookcases that are filled with thousands, literally thousands of CDs, um, and most of it classical vocal music and most of it opera. And um, yeah, I, I still cherish my collection, but I feel so silly sometimes because everything is available. No, a lot of it is available don't, don't to stream. Feel silly. 
and I don't really have like a method to play my CDs uh, at home. Oh, but okay. I I, you I managed. Yeah, I did manage to find myself a job where I could you know use my collection and share it, which is ultimately <laughs> what my goal was. And uh, the great thing about recordings we've talked about many times before is just like physical media, like forces you to like enjoy more of it than just like 10 seconds of it or 30 seconds and you need to go to like whatever some streaming service or youtube and you like listen to a minute and it's like no no investment you know but when you own something it's an investment you know and plus liner notes are a thing and like it's right. hard to find these essays they're not Criticism. often yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah they're not often um offered online and there's a lot Even of scholarship are hard to find sometimes yeah, that go into oh, yeah. making those liner notes so with the demise of these record companies, um, we're losing uh, a lot of those assets for sure. But we're also losing the future of recording. And there are artists now like Jack Swanson, who we interviewed last week, like give that guy a recording contract. I mean, like he's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And who's, yeah. there's not really enough, uh, you know, recording energy for recordings or interest in recordings anymore or resources for recordings so that we can document properly the careers of some of these great singers we have today. So it's just super sad. We know that there are some artists who have exclusive contracts with, you know, DECA, like Lisa Davidson. And I hope that they uh, fulfill their end of the bargain because we all know how important of a singer she is. Okay, so Peter Schickele, Peter Kubak, this is this is why New York City exists. It's because someone with his shtick, who had been doing it for so long, could only happen in New York. The the reason he's so important is not because he was a great comedian, but because he was a great artist and he actually was a legitimate composer, right? He was he's of the same vintage as say William Balcom. These are different senses of humor. Schickele has that more like, wow, really? He's going to do that, that kind of New York City, you know, vibe. Uh, it's it's incredible to to think that the man who like ran Shickly Mix, which I listened to religiously as a child too, Weston, is like, is gone. Wow. And I'm sure he's, wherever he's dancing now, I'm sure he's having a blast. And now Anya uh, Heratos, some- Hartaros, yeah. Hartaros. So she, yeah, she's been canceling a lot for like going on three years now. And- um, Somebody needs to like get to the bottom of this. Like, is she depressed? Is she unhealthy? Did she lose her voice? I don't know what. But I mean, she had a contract to sing Tosca. So somebody thought that she was singing well at some point. Um, Kundry is sort of a mezzo-y role. And so I don't know. Maybe her voice is changing. Whatever. She's a great singer, a really interesting artist. And uh, she should be in her prime right now. And um, it's a little bit mysterious is what's going on. She's got to watch out, or she's going to get replaced by Chat GPT. Yeah, uh, I, I th- this this story I think is actually really funny and really kind of interesting. This story is um, not interesting. Uh, this is this is you know it's it's essentially an experiment with music students to try to create an opera uh, with these tools, and I believe the intent is to show uh, the technology ain't there yet, uh, which I think is a worthy goal. Um, I, of course, think the great problem with ChatGPT and AI is the theft of artists and uh, from artists and the uh, general uh, cheapening of artistic disciplines. You know, why why did we invent a tool that could do uh, that could 
um, take care of the stuff that humans love to create when we still have to go, you know, go to work every day. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but I, I do think this is an interesting experiment. I think this will be mentioned as a footnote in history books uh, and hopefully not in a Terminator-y sort of way. <laughs> Are we ready to wrap this show up? Balls. Let's do it. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. That escalated quickly, Weston. Good call. Bad call. As our way of wrapping things up. I'm just shouting time. out David T. Little and Royce Stavrick. You, you, know? you just wanted to say balls in front of another grown man. <laughs> you got me, George. Oliver Camacho, what do you got this week for us, buddy? Good call or bad call? Uh, I've got two good calls, actually. Um, right. I was at the Prima for Cenerentola and uh, mm-hmm. great, great cast. Actually, Joshua Hopkins. I didn't uh, preview him when we talked about the show last week, but obviously Alessandro Corbelli. The Russian phenom, uh, Vasilisa Berzhanskaya. But my man, Jack Swanson, came through and the audience loved him. He added all the high notes, uh, great coloratura, great stage presence. Uh, he's just hitting out of the park. I'm so, I'm so happy for him. Uh, I also want to say that on Saturday, Champion opens. Um, and to kind of enhance the audience experience, hopefully new audiences coming to see Champion, they're actually putting an exhibit in the lobby. Mm. Uh, the lobby has not historically been activated at Lyric Opera, but uh, Afton Battle, who's in charge of, uh, you know, some of this, uh, we call it Ly- Lyric Unlimited, sort of like the non-main right. um, stage stuff. She uh, is, she contracted um, Victor Le Ewing Givens, who is a art curator, to create an exhibit by a rather famous art collector uh, in Chicago named Patrick McCoy, who in the 80s took photographs of random black men on the streets of Chicago. Yes, and right. Those, yeah, those photographs are going to be, or some of those photographs will be on display in an exhibit awesome. called Concrete Rose. And uh, there's a lot of parallel between the subjects of these photographs and the story of Emil Griffith. So uh, that exhibit will be open starting now, I think, uh, I in, in conjunction with the... Uh, beginning of champion and i will be uh, moderating a discussion between the curator and patrick mccoy on opening night so if you have if you're interested in coming to see the exhibit um on saturday uh hit me up on my dm slip into my dms you you could meet oliver from the obs in person wow yeah that would that would be cool weston williams what do you got one day i hope to meet oliver in person Uh, I have a good call for my hometown opera company of Opera Birmingham. They just had their uh, world premiere of the opera. They commissioned Touch, which is about the life of Alabama icon Helen Keller. Mm. Um, And I had a report directly from my father. Uh, So this is a sort of a sneaky listener mailbag. And I believe we got a report from Pat in Birmingham as well. Uh, But according to my father, who saw it... um, it was just a an absolutely stellar example of how we can have uh, in, uh, inclusion of various groups mm-hmm. who would not ordinarily be at the opera. Um, there were uh, visually impaired and hearing impaired people on stage in the audience working backstage, even like the lighting designers were signing. Mm. Uh, the uh, singer who played Helen Keller, I believe, was visually impaired herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this intense feeling of 
community to it uh, and uh, locality. It is a very local story, but has this universal resonance. I believe it was composed by um, uh, a woman composer whose name escapes me right now, but uh, maybe I can find it. Maybe I can't. That's okay. We'll put it on the website. <laughs> we'll put it on the website. Uh, and it's so exciting to me because Opera Birmingham, when I was very young, was you know a regional opera company with a budget, and it's one of those companies that has seen its core audience just like disappear over the past you know thirty years or so. Um, and in the past you know five to ten years they've realized that they need to start doing some more to build it back up yeah. by being more local by pursuing new work by commissioning stuff really engaging with the community that the story is about and working with them to create that story and it's such a beautiful thing to see it come off so well and i really hope this this opera yeah. touch goes beyond just birmingham it's and into the, the rest of the country of and beyond music by carla lucero and colabredis mariana mott newworth took four years to to get that show um out there on the stage yeah pat in birmingham uh wrote to us with a great review of the show and added entering the theater lobby they said we could feel the crowd people were discussing the upcoming performance except for a lone wolverine and a tennessee volunteer fan by the bar <laughs> talking about nick saban no one paid them any mind i love that uh thanks for writing in pat I got a good call as well. Ray Chen, who is a Taiwanese-Australian violinist doing the uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra in Munich recently, and at the end of the performance, is thrown a bra, <laughs> which that is like... We're into we're in the like free the nipple movement now, which is that's great. Love it. I, I just I don't just when you thought you've heard it all, I suppose. Chen post Listomania's back, baby. Chen post on social media, hey, I just got thrown my first bra. If only I could tell my thirteen year old self, if you practice hard enough and sound good, people will throw their underwear at you. I have I have nothing else to say. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get that voice heard. Find links to stuff we've talked about at the website, operaboxcore.com. It's also where you're going to put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Your audio editor is Weston Williams. Hey, for guest Jonathan Cohen. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you use AI to pick your five audition arias. We're back with an all-new show next week. We go inside the huddle with composer Melissa Dunphy. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more balls. Join us. <laughs>